For the Christmas season, we're looking at three joy-filled events in the, the Lord's life. We've, we've looked at His coming, we've considered His cross, and we're going to finish out the book of Revelation this morning by looking toward the crowning of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not been with us on Sunday night, um, that's what we've been doing. I can think of no better way to finish out verse by verse the book of Revelation than this message this morning this week and this this time, because it fits perfectly together. I don't know if you've ever thought about uh, this, but the two most significant parts of any book are the are the beginning and the the end. The beginning introduces you to the author and and what's coming. It, it sets the stage. It typically tells you or gives you a hint in some way why he's writing. Uh, what he wants to say in the pages that follow. They say a good introduction will is like the hook. It pulls you in and, and holds you to uh, throughout the, the, the pages so, so you, won't, you don't want to put the book down. That's the beginning. And the ending draws it all together. It, it, it gives the writer a final opportunity to reinforce his point. It's the last chance to say something. And both of those are very, very significant. And the Bible begins and ends the same way, with a promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3, God promises a deliverer who will come from the seed of a woman, being Eve, who who will crush the head of of Satan. And then from that point forward, the... The entire Old Testament looks toward, toward that, that moment. It, it reveals God's method and His plan to accomplish that promise piece by piece and, and point by, by point. And as it begins to unfold, that promise will be fulfilled in the sons of Noah, specifically Shem. That plan is brought further into focus with the call of Abraham, of raising up Abraham. And then, then Abraham, the, the storyline progresses. It moves to Isaac, the, the promised child. And then Jacob, one of the twins that God chose before he was ever born. And then Joseph, who leads the story through Egypt. And then after a long period of time, you know, it, it goes through Moses. He leads the, God leads the nation of Israel into a land that God has given them. From Moses, it, it goes to Joshua and then Samuel and, and then through a king named David after God's rejection of Saul and then from David to Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes that we've been looking at to the divided kingdoms, to the prophets where God gives messages to repent and, and, and obey Him and, and then all of that prepares the way for John the Baptist who came announcing the seed as finally here. The promised one is is finally here. It was God Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 22, which is the end of the Bible, ends or concludes with another promise of Christ's coming. Look, if you would, at Revelation 22, verse 12. This is where we end. We ended last, last time. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to, remit, uh, to render to every man according to what he has done. Behold, I am coming, Jesus Christ himself declares. And just like the promise of the first time, he will come again. And just like the entire Old Testament, 
uh, reveals how God pieces His plan together. The New Testament does the same, and the book of Revelation is the final piece in that, in that, in that puzzle, that, that declaration. Revelation is a foretelling of the events before they happen, and they lead to Christ coming again. If you've been with us on, on Sunday night, this is just a, a, a three-part outline to the entire book of, of Revelation. If you've not been there, there's, it begins with John being told to write down the things that are, that's the message to the seven churches, the things that shall take place after, that's the scroll, the throne room scene, and then the tribulation period, all the judgments, the trumpets, the, the, the bowls, and then finally all things new. That's the new, new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem. And now we are here at the end of Revelation at the, the epilogue or the after speech. It's the conclusion of the, of the, of the letter. The very last page of the book. And he draws his conclusion in verses 6 through 12 of Revelation 22. And then the passage that we're going to look at this morning, verses 13 through 21, the end of the book is God's final outtake. It's his final word. In verses 6 through 12, John speaks to believers. Believers are responding, are called to respond to the book of, of Revelation. That's what we saw the last time we were there here on, on, a, on a Sunday night. You're to respond with the promise of His coming, with obedience in verses 6 and 7, with worship, verses 8 and 9. You're to witness in verses 10 and 11, and you're to serve in, in, verse, in verse 12. God will render to every man according to what he's done. There's the service that's called. But beginning in verse 13, to the end of, of this letter, God brings the entire book to a close with an astonishing ending. This is like hanging around at the end of the movie uh, to see if there's any extras. You know how the credits roll and then then all the millennials kind of hang back to see if there's something else that's going to happen. That's the way that you ought to think like these last verses of, of Revelation. And indeed, there is a, a final word. How will God end the entire Bible, such a grand story, it, revealing so much? What is His final word? And the entire Bible ends with a final invitation to sinners to repent and believe. Before God ever closes the cover on His book, He pleads one more time for people to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And He even lays out reasons why you should, you should do that. Verse 13 through 21 are God's compelling, compelling invitation that, that ends the, ends the Bible. God's ending to the Bible is four persuasive encouragements or reasons to respond to His invitation. And you should do that because of the identity of, the, of Christ, the one who's coming, the exclusivity of heaven in verses 14 and 15, then there's a call to come in verses 16 and 17, and then there is a warning not to reject this invitation, this, this call in verses 18 and, and 19. God begins this, this great ending by giving an invitation. And the first reason that He gives, the first encouragement that He gives for you to respond to this invitation is the identity of the one who is, who is giving it. Look, if you would, at verse, 
13. The identity of the one who is coming. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The first reason given to pay attention to this great invitation is because of the the invitation is given by your Creator. It's given from God Himself and from the person of Christ, the one who was promised, the one the whole Bible says is going to come. Here He has come and He's promised to come again and He gives a call, He gives an invitation to come. Not only is He the one who is coming but he's the one giving the invitation, verse 17, and I'll show you that whenever we get there. And this one says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and the last. It's not the, it's not the, the first time you've heard that in, in Revelation. It's used in chapter 1, verse 8. It's used in chapter 2. It's also used in, in chapter 21. It's, it's, just, it's three ways to say the, the same thing. The words Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet. It's like, I'm A to Z. They're used to represent the Creator because He's the source of all things. He's the goal of all things. That's what it means. He exists first. He exists before all creation. And and, and He extends beyond the last. There's no end. He's the beginning and, and He's the end. He was there before the beginning. He's there after the ending. He's there... And every part in between. Jesus Christ is the source of all things. He's the end goal of all creation. It was made for His glory. That's what, that's what this verse means. He's outside of time. He's unlimited by it. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's boundless. He's limitless. He's the creator. That's the one who's giving this, this invitation. We heard the same declaration from John before in now we're hearing it from Christ Himself. We, we find out here where John got this passage that we, that we looked at two Sundays ago. Where did John learn that Jesus Christ was the Logos, the Creator? Well, he learned it from Jesus Himself, and here's Jesus proclaiming that in this one verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He's your Creator, is what He's saying. That's who's giving this invitation. And He's also he's also God. This also is a statement of Christ's deity. Revelation 1.8 and Revelation 21.16, it's, it's God, the Father, who identifies Himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And now here, the risen Christ applies it to Himself. And it's no mistake that Jesus starts the way Jesus starts this statement. Look at verse 13 again. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Ego eimi. I am that I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am God is what the Lord is saying. In Exodus 3.13, when God informs Moses that He's going to to send him. Moses is going to be part of, of God's plan. He's going to send him as his spokesperson, his spokesman, and that, that Moses is going to be used for God to lead his people out of Israel into, into Egypt. Moses asked God's name. You remember that passage? The burning bush? Exodus three thirteen and 14. 
Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, notice, who's speaking? Moses says to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, To God your fathers, uh, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus Christ here says, He's the I am. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the He's deity. He's God. He's the one extending this invitation. And if that wasn't reason enough, He's the promised one. He's the He's the Christ. Look down at verse 16, if you would. Verse 13, He's the Creator and He's God. In verse 16, He's the promised one. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things. For the churches... I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. I, Jesus, have sent you a message. Now, that that in and of itself ought to to take your breath away. I, Jesus, have sent you a message. The Creator, the Christ, has sent a message. And He writes it here to the churches. It's to to you, but it's for, for all to read. And He says, you should listen... Because I am both the ancestor of David and the offspring of David. I'm the, I'm the ancestor. I'm the, I'm the root of David. And I'm the offspring. I'm the descendant of David. What's he saying? I am the source of David's line. That's deity. I'm the source of David. I'm the source of the covenant. I'm the source of David's line. And I'm the offspring of David's, David's line. That's humanity. Now, how's that possible? How's he both the source and the offspring of the, of the line of of David. John MacArthur said, you have here one of the clearest expressions of the person of Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully fully man. That's not the only place in the Bible that says this. He's the one that King David looked forward to when he said in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. This is why Jesus uses this passage whenever he's, he's revealing himself to the Pharisees in Matthew 22. Remember in Matthew 22? When he's, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he asks them this question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the Pharisees answered to Jesus, the son of David. And then Jesus says to them, then, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? If David then calls him Lord, how's he his son? I mean, Jesus asked the Pharisees the paradox, or the seeming paradox of this passage, of what, of what he answers right here, what, what he declares. Jesus answers that question. Verse 46 of Matthew says, and, uh, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to, to ask another question. Well, Jesus answers that question right here. And it's the reason that you should respond to the invitation. He's the source of David's line. He's the offspring of David's line. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's the morning star, this verse says, the one who was, who was promised. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the king of David. He's the savior of the world. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is. That's what he's saying. And he sends you a message. At the very end of the Bible, 
You ask, who is giving the invitation to come? And Jesus answers, I am. I am the Creator. I am God. And I am the Promised One. And this personal invitation comes from God Himself. And I'm afraid some people respond to junk mail better than they do the personal invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. When mail comes to your home, you open the letters that seem most important, don't you? Uh, direct mail companies even pay people to hand address envelopes. We have one right here in town. So, so people will think it's from a real person, so you'll think it's important, so you'll open it. And then whenever you open it, it's a... It's junk most of the time. Pastor Brody this past week showed me a letter that came to TCS from the, from the IRS. And, and he obviously opened it immediately. And, and it was a form letter that just said, we've changed our address. It was, it was nothing. But the point was he opened it immediately. He brought it to me. He said, look at this. He said, I thought, wow, well, what are we getting from the government? And, and here it was, a, it was a change of address. He opened it immediately because of the source, because it looked important. Well, as God is closing out the Bible, He wants you to know the source of the invitation. He wants you to know so you'll open it and so you respond to it. And you should respond to this invitation because it was given by your Creator, by God Himself, and coming to you in the person of Jesus Christ. You should also respond because there's no other way to get into heaven. There's the exclusivity of heaven. Look if you would at verse 14. The second reason to respond to to his invitation is because of the exclusivity of of heaven. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the to the tree of life. Some of your virgins may say something about keeping his commandments. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the, the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, after identifying himself, the one who's, who's extending this invitation, Jesus reminds us that the decision is grave, doesn't he? In verses 14 and 15. He adds weight to why you should respond to, to this invitation. He says, because there are those who are, who are getting into heaven and there are those who are not. That's what verses 14 and 15 say. We just saw the ominous passage, if you were with us in Revelation, about the lake of fire in, in chapter 21. And, and right after that, the, the vision of the eternal city and the, the capital, uh, New Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice the contrast here. Blessed are those, and outside are the, or are the. Blessed are those who wash their robes. In verse 15, outside are the, are the dogs, those who are not blessed. This is the final beatitude in the, the book of Revelation, the final blessed. And it describes those who are going to be blessed for all eternity. It's those who, who have washed their robes, those who have come to Christ. You know what that says? It says heaven is exclusive. It's not inclusive. You're not getting in unless you, you come. The only way that you can enter, and that's through the one who is the, 
the descendant of David, Jesus Christ himself, the, the creator, God, who became a substitute for your, for your sin. This idea of, of, of washing your robe, it's probably the, probably the best manuscript. Washing your robe is a reference to being cleansed from your, from your sin. We, we've seen that before in the, in the book of Revelation. Revelation 7, verse 14. I said it to him, my Lord, you know, and he said, these are the ones who came out of great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the, in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God. What's the reason that they're before the throne of God? They've washed their robes in the, in the blood of the Lamb. This is not just mentioned in the New Testament. This concept of washing, that you need to be washed from your sin, and only the blood of Christ can do that. Isaiah, you know this passage well, in verses 16 and 18. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be white like, like wool. This is this passage is talking about. You sing about it all the time, don't you? It's a blessed truth. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's what Christ is asking you this morning. Have you been washed? Are, are you clean? Is, your, is the, the sin stain in your soul, has it been cleansed? I'm not saying, did you clean your life up? Did you start living right? Did you wake up one day and say, I don't want to live that way anymore? What are you going to do about the indelible stain that, 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 that marks your life before God? What are you going to do about the record that you had before? Well, there's only one thing you can do. It needs to be washed clean. And the blood of Christ can wash that clean. That's what Jesus is saying. And those who have went to that fountain are blessed for all eternity. And they alone have the right to the tree of life. Look at verse 14 again. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of, of life and that they may enter by the gates into the city. Well, he's already told us the city and where the tree of life is located in the, in the previous, uh, previous verses. Look back at verse 1 of Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This cleansing flow comes from God Himself, and, and those who have come to Christ will have access to it for, for all eternity. This is inside the city. It's inside the gates. But sadly, there are others who won't get through the gates. Look, if you would, at verse 15. Outside. Outside what? Outside the gates. Outside the, outside the, the city. Outside of heaven. There are those who will be excluded. Which is why he's giving this invitation now. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying Here's a, another group that Jesus describes outside the city, meaning outside of heaven, and he identifies them. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list. 
You're not meant to read this and go, oh, wow, I'm not a, I'm not a sorcerer, so I must be okay. It's not meant to be exhaustive. It's, it's representative. It represents those who will be excluded from heaven. Five of six of these are, are also in Revelation 21, the, the lake of fire passage. And he starts with an interesting uh, person in the list. Verse 15, outside are the, are the dogs. He starts with dogs. Now, now what does that mean? Um, God's not a member of PETA? Well, I don't think he is. But he's not saying that he rejects animals. He's talking about people who have the character of animals. Men of low morals. A dog is, is how the Bible describes someone who is impure. Someone who is, has been so debased by their, by their sin that they're unconcerned about it. They, they lack dignity. Now, I understand that you have a dog, I have a dog, and they're cute and cuddly. That, that, that was not a dog in the, in the Old Testament or New Testament time. They're, they're scroungy. This word was used in Deuteronomy 23:18 of male homosexuals, temple prostitutes, that were debased. They don't care what they do or who sees them. They parade their sinfulness for all to see. They're even proud about it. You, you see that in, even in, in the culture today. One writer said that just like a dog lacks discretion in many of its behaviors, so these men have lost their dignity and engage in degrading acts. And before you think, amen, those homosexuals aren't getting into heaven, you better listen to Paul and the rest of the list. Because in Philippians 3.2, Paul uses this same term. In Deuteronomy, it's used of male homosexuals. In, in Philippians 3.2, it's used of people who, who hold the gospel with contempt, who trample the invitation of Christ. Paul uses it in Philippians for Judaizers, the dogs, those who are rejecting the, the gospel of grace, they're dogs. And then the list goes on. The list says those who practice sorcery, meaning they, they use intoxicants to alter their mental state. That includes drunkenness. It also says anyone immoral is not getting in. The root is pornos. So anyone who's looked upon another person with lust is not getting in. They're outside. And anyone who's murdered is also excluded. And Jesus applies that to the heart of, heart of anger. If you've ever been out of control with your anger, you're out as well. And he rounds that out with lying. Those who, who love falsehood means that they're devoid of truthfulness. They're, they're like their, their father, the devil. If you've ever told a lie, you're excluded from, from heaven. You know what that means? That means everyone in here is excluded. You're outside. Unless... You wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. Unless you come to the fountain. And you come to that fountain because you're called to come there. There's the exclusivity of heaven. And then there's a call to, to come. You should respond to this invitation because of the source. It's, it's from God Himself. You should respond because of the singular access to heaven. There's only one way getting in. And you should respond because there's a command to come. I think I told you at the cantata, when I was giving a little gospel presentation at the end, the gospel is an invitation, but it's also a command. And here's the command. The command is to repent and believe. 
And you're invited to do that because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17 here, there's a call to come. But I want you to notice that it has two directions. Look at verse 17, if you, if you will. The Spirit and the Bride says, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Now watch it flip. And let the one who is thirsty come. Well, that's obviously not talking about Christ. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's obviously not talking about Christ either. There are two calls here. There's the call to Christ by the saved, by the Spirit and the bride. They're calling to Christ saying, come. And then there's a call to to the lost to come to Christ. And then they join in in the call for, for Christ. The heart of the whole passage is, is verse 17. I mean, all of the other stuff that we're talking about is, is accoutrements, if you will, around this, this, this command, which is where the, the, the theme of invitation comes. Here's an invitation. Come, 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 Lord Jesus. Come to the Lord Jesus. Everything else supports it. And the emphasis on this verse is on the word come. There are three imperative commands here. There's an invitation to Christ, and there's the one an invitation to the one who's thirsty, and then to anyone who's willing. And this word is applied to first to the spirit and the and the bride. The spirit and the bride. Verse twenty tells us who the spirit and, and the bride are calling. If you would, at verse twenty, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's who the Spirit and the Bride are calling to come. You see that? It's the Lord. This is a very significant statement. This is not just one of those throwaway verses where, oh, the Spirit and the Bride says, come. Yeah, I want Jesus to come. Why is the Spirit calling for Christ to come? Why is the church here calling for for Christ to come. It's a very significant statement. Throughout the Bible, Jesus has, has promised to come. In fact, it's one of the, the last things that he says to his disciples. One of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples is he's coming. He even comforts them with that, with that promise. And you have it right here in, in John 14. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house are, are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going away. And he's preparing them before that happens, before he goes to the cross, before he dies, before he's buried. In verse 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way and where I am going. I will come again. And the Spirit says, come. God the Father also promised a coming when Jesus would leave, didn't he? The coming of the Spirit. The Spirit would be our comforter while we wait on Jesus to come, listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, You have heard from Me, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many, many days from now. So Jesus comforts with, with the promise of His coming, and the Father sends the Spirit as a promise while we wait on Christ's coming. And here is the Spirit calling for Christ to, to come. That, that's pretty significant. The Spirit's role is to give life and to, to empower us by pointing to Jesus Christ and, until He returns. One of the ways that you can, that you can tell error, uh, spiritual error, false teaching, is, 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 is what's it all about? Who does it focus on? Does it focus on Christ? Or does it focus on a man? Or even does it focus on the Holy Spirit? In there are certain churches, the Holy Spirit is the, is the primary, He's the main guy. He's the one slaying people and doing all kinds of things. It's all about the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. That's not the work of the Spirit. The Spirit's role, the Spirit's sole role is to bring people to Christ and then point to Christ, deflect from Himself and shine the spotlight on Jesus and on Jesus alone. And so now here is the third person of the Trinity who shines the light away from Himself and to Jesus Christ. And so now, here at the end of the Bible, the Spirit calls for Jesus to return. The Spirit longs for His role of of convicting sinners and gathering the elect. That's over. It's, It's going to be over one day. And the Spirit is, is looking forward to that day. He's calling now for Christ to come, for Christ to be crowned, for Him to, to come and receive the glory that's due His name. And all of those sinners that, that He's done, that applied the work of the gospel in their life, will be gathered around Christ. He's calling for that, for that day. And the Spirit calls for the Lord's return. And look who joins in. Verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride. Those who are the recipients of the the Spirit's work. (laughs) The Spirit does the work, applies the work of Christ. The Father planned your salvation. Christ accomplished your salvation. And the Spirit applies that to your heart. And now here are those who have received that saying, Come. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And they're saying, Coming to to the Lord. Now, we've already been told who who that is in Revelation 19.7. It's the... It's the church. Jesus even mentions the church in verse 16. Look back at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you those things, or these things, for the churches, for the the ecclesia. It's the first time in Revelation since the seven letters that that this word church is mentioned. It's called the, the bride of Christ and... And here the bride again, but, but this is significant because the word church is used. And here the church of Christ is calling for the, for the glorious coming of its master. I mean, here is the bride of Christ calling for her groom to come and get me. We're waiting, we're longing for, for you to return. Do you long to be with Jesus? I hope you do. It's one of the evidences that you're His. If you're indifferent about Jesus Christ here and now, if you could take or leave the gospel, if you could take or leave the Bible, that's an evidence that you're not His. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to warn you. It's not that you wish to die, but that 
Even the reason that you want to live longer is, is to serve Him. Your, your future hope is that you'll, that you'll be with Him. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 1. What, what shall I choose? I, I don't know. He's saying, I, I may die. I, I'm torn between two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better indeed. But it's more necessary for you that, that I remain in the body. And whether you whether you're absent from the from the body or present with the Lord, you desire to live pleasing to Him. And yet, while you're living pleasing to Him, don't you long to see His face? Don't you long to be with Him? The Spirit and the church are longing for Jesus to be crowned and to receive all the full glory that He deserves. And and they call out at the very end of the Bible for that day. But there's another call. If you would, at verse seventeen. Let the one who hears say, come. There's some who don't hear, and there's one who hears. Let the one who hears, they're joining in the chorus. And let the one who is thirsty come. They're not calling for Christ to come. They're, They're thirsty and they're to come to Christ. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, there's a call for them to come. Now those who who are sinners in need, are are called. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. And let the one who needs the the water of life. Uh, Don't you notice it's the the same language that that we saw last week in Isaiah 55. You remember Isaiah 55? Last week? I don't have it. Mm. Well, I'll read it to you. You remember Isaiah 55, how we ended? Ho, let everyone who thirsts come to the waters, and you who have no money come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come if you're willing, come if you're hunger, uh, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you recognize your need. Come without payment, you have nothing to offer. Where's the thirsty person being called to come? Well, well the verse about heaven tells us. They're, they're, they want the water of life. They're, they're called to take the water of, of life, which is only available without cost. It's by grace alone. You're only, you only get access to the, to the water of life if you washed your robes. And so it's a, it's a call to, to wash your robes. It's a, it's a call to, to come to Christ. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's, you can't get it on your own merit. And the ones who are responding to to this command have descriptions. The ones who are called are hearing. They're thirsty. They desire to come. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, doesn't it? How do you get thirsty? Well, you hear the gospel. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you have a desire to come? You don't have a natural desire to come. In fact, the Bible says that, that, that you're repelled by Christ. You're repelled by God because your deeds are evil. How does that change? How, how do you have a desire to come? How, how do you get thirsty? How do you realize that you have a need? Well, you listen about who Jesus is and what He's done. And, and you realize that, that there's an invitation that's given and that there are those who are getting in and those who are not. And, and that's how thirst is, is generated. Old-timers used to call it falling under conviction. <laughs> you get the can't-help-its. 
I know I have a need, but I can do nothing about it. And I must have this problem of my soul solved. That, that's this, this idea of thirst that's here. It's a realization. Not, oh yeah, I want to go to heaven and I don't want to go to hell. It's a realization. That's exactly where I'm going. And I have a need. And apart, and apart from someone saving me, I'm not going to go there. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I desire for something to change. And then you, 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 you look to the only one who can provide that. In the Bible, someone who is thirsty is a metaphor for a person who realizes their need. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Jesus uses that concept in one of the first evangelistic encounter, encounters recorded in the Gospel in John 4. You know, the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And He tells her He alone can quench her thirst. And he tells her that he alone can quench her thirst before she ever says that she's spiritually thirsty. He uses the metaphor of coming to the well to drink. And, and he says there's, there's, there's another drink of water that you need. There's another, another drink. Being spiritually hunger, hungry and thirsty is a person who realizes that they have a need and they can do nothing about it on their own. And they, they yearn for someone to fix it. And anyone who knows their need and where to come can come freely. That's the last part. Look at verse 17 again. Let one, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes, who desires to take the water of life without, without cost. Let him come. When you realize your need and that there's only one place that, that need can be met, then then you come to, to the King, you come to the Savior, and then you, you join in the chorus with the Spirit and with the, with the Bride. You'll not come to Christ until you realize that you need Christ. And you can't come to God without anything you have to offer because salvation is free. And it's so serious that God ends all of this with a, with a warning. If you would, at verse 18. There's another testimony. There's a warning not to reject this invitation. You should respond because of its source. It's from God Himself. Because of the singular access to heaven and because of the sureness of the Bible. That's what He says here in verse 17. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. Notice who's speaking. He who testifies says, yes, I am coming quickly. Verse 20. He who testifies of these things, what he just says in verses 18 and 19, It's the Lord. It's not John. John is not making this statement. God is making this statement. Jesus Himself, in the close of the entire Bible, testifies to its accuracy and the authority. And He says on the basis of the accuracy and the authority of the Bible, that's why you should repent and that's why you should believe and that's why you should respond to this this invitation. It's a warning, though. 
What does that have to do with the accuracy and the authority of the Bible? What is a warning? Well, it's a warning not to explain it away or to reject it. That's what he's saying in verse 18. If anyone adds to them, to the words of this book, God will add to him the plagues which are written. And if anyone takes away from the, from the words of this, of this prophecy, of course that applies to Revelation, but it applies to the whole Bible. The Bible ends with an affirmation of its accuracy and a warning not to ignore it. God does the same thing in Deuteronomy 4. Look at Deuteronomy 4. This is the, the, the last book in the Pentateuch. You shall not add to the word which I am you, uh, commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Don't take away, don't add to it, so that you might keep what I'm commanding you. There's also a similar warning in the wisdom literature. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, I, I memorized this verse. As a, as a young believer, every word of God is, is tested. He's a shield to those who take the refuge in Him. Do not add to His words. And it goes on to say, or He will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. The same warning is in the prophets. I don't have this one, so you have to listen. Jeremiah 26.2. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak, do not omit a word. The exact same thing. Don't add to my words. Don't take away from my words. So you have the same warning in the Pentateuch, the beginning of the Bible, in the wisdom literature, in the middle of the Bible, in the prophets that lead us to the New Testament, and now, in the last book of the Bible, in the very last few verses of the Bible, you have the same statement given by God Himself. In every place, God says the same thing. Don't tamper with my book. Don't reject it, and don't explain it away. It means, take what I said exactly as I said it, including the invitation. It's particularly important for the book of Revelation, isn't it? One that's come under the greatest attack. What does it mean to add to the Bible or take away from it? You say, I don't, I'm not like cutting my Bible up or, you know, putting sticky notes in there. What does it mean to, to, to add to the Bible or, or take away from it? Well, it means misinterpreting Scripture. It means saying the Bible says something whenever it doesn't. It means purposely twisting it to fit your own desires. You know, people do that. It also means intentionally leaving something out that, that's uncomfortable, like the lake of fire. <laughs> people do that, don't they? It, it simply means the command that God gives to, to Timothy. Rightly divide the word of truth. Get it right. And when you hear it right, for you it means to respond to it. Don't explain it away. I shudder to think what it will be like on the day. Not, not people that make errors. I make errors, you make errors. I, I, I pray that I won't. I ask God's forgiveness whenever I, whenever I do. But I shudder to think about the day uh, where, when people will stand before the Lord, the ones that you see on TV that purposely twist the gospel in order to line their pockets? Can you imagine what it's going to be like listening to this verse on that day? 
You can violate this passage with perceived words of knowledge or visions. Mystics violate this passage by thinking they're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. You could violate this passage by following promptings. Because Revelation is the end of the Bible. You need nothing more. There's nothing more that you need. You obey the voice of God in Scripture, and once you do all it says, then you can look for more voices in your heads or wherever. And why would you need every, anything to be added to Revelation? The message of Revelation goes all the way into the new heaven and the new earth, into the eternal home. There's nothing more that needs to be said. But if you purposely avoid the words of God or twist them, God will judge you. And it's an eternal judgment. That's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 19. Anyone who takes away from the words of this book, book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the, from the tree of life, from the holy city which are written in the, in the book. God will add the plagues, the terrifying judgment that's, that's coming upon sinners will fall upon, upon you. One commentator brought out something that that I never thought about before. Think about it if you were one of the seven churches, say Laodicea, that got a letter from Christ that says you're lukewarm. Think about how this warning plays for you. You really wouldn't want to listen to that message, would you? Or or think about if you're Jezebel or you're a follower follower of the Nicolaitans in in the first seven letters of Revelation, and you get this at the end. You hear that and go, whoa, what? Who does John think he is? Now think about the temptation that you have when you hear the Bible preached to dismiss it and explain it away and walk away from an unbelievable invitation like this to come to Christ and have your sins washed away full and, and free. The same warning is given to you. Listen to these words. Listen to this invitation. It's so great. It's an invitation from God Himself. It's, it's about the only way to heaven. It, it comes with absolute authority in the source. And the, and the final words are a testimony. Look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. The final words of the Bible are Jesus Christ Himself declaring He's coming and He's coming And to that promise, we the people respond, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And look at verse 21. And until He comes, we pray for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with us all. Amen. And that grace can only be with you if you respond to the invitation. You bow the knee. And you turn from yourself and your wickedness and your sin and you turn to Christ who alone can wash away not all the sins that you will do but all the sins that you've ever done and the offense, the enmity that's between you and God and that is offered fully and freely for those who will humble themselves and repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God ends the Bible the way that He begins with a promise and with a final invitation Saying, come, should you bow your heads.